0: Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG six years ago, and we're a London-based strategy and management consultancy in the social impact space. What that means is that we specialize in philanthropy, corporate impact, and fundraising advice. We work with organizations of all sizes and remits, and like to say, we're cause area agnostic, meaning that our clients, which range from individuals to foundations, companies, charities, and NGOs, work in a range of cause areas from global health to women and girls, arts and culture, climate, and international development. So as a consultancy that advises on both sides of the philanthropy fundraising equation, What Donors Want offers an exclusive behind the scenes view into major gifts grant making, from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a major donor and get right down to it. What do they want more of? What do they want less of? And what truly goes into making a fantastic partnership? We're going to give you this advice straight from the donor's mouth. So welcome to the very first episode of IG's new podcast series, What Donors Want. I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Stefferson-Chef, an advisor here at IG. She's an experienced fundraiser and program officer and a producer of this podcast. Basically, she's our very own version of Roz from Frasier. Rachel, tell us a little bit about today's guest.
1: Hey, it's such a pleasure to be here. So, for our first episode, we're going to be chatting with Alfonsina Peñalosa, who's a Program Officer for Global Development and Population at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Based in Menlo Park, California, and founded in 1966, it's now one of the largest philanthropic institutions in the United States, with assets of approximately $9 billion. They award roughly $400 million in grants per year to organizations across the globe, and have 120 employees, all based around the San Francisco Bay Area. The Foundation's priorities include education, the environment, livelihoods in developing countries, women's empowerment, performing arts, Bay Area communities, and making the philanthropy sector more effective. They support organizations of all sizes, from grassroots to multilateral institutions, and what's really cool is that they're big advocates of general operating support grants, which are considered the Holy Grail for any major gifts fundraiser.
0: Alfonsina Peñalosa is a program officer in global development and population at the Hewlett Foundation. As an expert in gender and development, she is responsible for grants to expand women's economic opportunity and increase the responsiveness of governments to their citizens' needs. Alfonsina has an incredibly impressive resume. Before Hewlett, she founded and ran two Mexican-based think tanks, Arena Ciudadana and Ethos, worked in Mexico's Ministry of Public Administration, was the deputy director of the Mexican Council of International Affairs, taught courses on gender in politics and development, and participated in numerous gender-focused projects with United Nations agencies, government ministries, and the private sector. Some fun facts about Alfonsina are that she loves live music and volunteers for SoFar Sounds, a London-based network of music lovers that host concerts in people's living rooms around the world.
1: So it's funny because I'm actually also a volunteer for SoFar, so, Far. so it's, it's a pretty small world. I'm really excited to chat with her. Should we give her a call?
0: Let's do it. We have Alfonsina on the line. Um, Alfonsina, welcome very much to IG's first podcast, uh, What Donors Want. Thank you so, for being on.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Thank
2: you for having me, Rachel and Carlos. It's great to be here.
0: All right, so we're going to get started. Um, we want to do with, with a series of kind of get-to-know-you questions. So this is a little bit of a speed round. It's supposed to be fun. We want to get these done in about a minute. So so really say the first thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Oh, okay, sure. Shoot. All right, number one. What Hogwarts house would you be in? Oh, that's easy. Gryffindor.
1: <laughs> what is your favorite Beatles song?
2: Oh, um, oh, uh, here comes the sun. Classic.
0: If you could have any superpower, what would it be?
2: Teletransportation.
1: Well, speaking of which, where is your next dream travel destination? <laughs> um, usually,
2: any beach. Currently, uh, daydreaming about Tuscany. So Ooh. I'm torn between those two. Nice.
0: Which Spice Girl would you be? <laughs>
2: Ah oh, um, I'll go with Posh.
0: That was mine too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Um
2: ooh. Uh, I think it was Lonely City by I think her name's
1: Olivia Lang or Lang.
2: Okay. Uh, and I'm currently reading uh, Bad Feminist by Rick Gay. Yeah,
1: that's an amazing book. I love that one.
0: Yeah. What was the last show you binged?
2: Um, uh, I think I've binged a combination of two, uh, Catastrophe and Season 2 of Master of Nuts. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Or, as our president uh, might say, coffee or some new word he came up with on Twitter today. Cafifi? <laughs> oh, oh, right. Co-fee-fee? Co-fee-fee. Co-fee-fee. That's it. That's it. <laughs> of course.
0: All right. Brittany or Christina?
2: Ugh. Oh, neither? Can I say neither?
0: No. You gotta choose. <laughs> uh...
2: Uh,
1: Brittany.
0: Good. Correct.
1: <laughs> Pass the test. Um, sunrise or sunset? Uh,
2: sunset I wish I could say sunrise but not in my future anytime soon so sunset um, <laughs> ideally with an Aperol spritz or a gin tonic
1: ooh maybe in Tuscany oh there you go well, yeah, yeah
0: dress as sposh spice
2: dress <laughs> as <smush> spice
1: <laughs> the dream well, at least I'm consistent in my answers probably. there
0: you
1: go <laughs> amazing well thank you so much it's so awesome to get to know you For the second part of this, we really wanted to do a deep dive into your work as a program officer at Hewlett, including both what you look for in a grant proposal from that technical perspective, but also from a relationship-based grantee program officer perspective as well. So, as listeners know, you are a program officer for global development and population at the Hewlett Foundation. And so, how did you come into this role, and what is your favorite thing about it?
2: Uh, So, I joined the Hewlett Foundation. They used to have an office in Mexico City, which is uh, where I was born and grew up. Um, And a colleague of mine who at the time, well, he was a friend at the time, he was working for another foundation, uh, knew that I was looking for a new job opportunity and thought that I would be a good fit. Um, He knew that I had worked in civil society and similar uh, issues that um, this position uh, would involve particularly transparency and development issues, um, mm-hmm. and so I applied and I got it. And oddly enough, he now works with me at Hewlett at the same uh, program. So it kind of was, um, you know, a full circle, sor- full circle karma of um, of job recommendations. Amazing.
1: Um,
2: there are there are too many things that I like about this job, uh, <laughs> but um, I think. Uh, one would definitely be that I get to work on issues that I care deeply about. So it's mm-hmm. not only um, not only things that I professionally sort of know and have technical expertise on, but um, but that I really uh, care about. Uh, and specifically, I think also working in Mexico. You know, geographically being able to work still uh, in in the country that raised me, and and hopefully making some sort of a difference. Um, I think at Hewlett, the people that I get to work with, and in general, I've been quite lucky in my professional career to just work and be surrounded by incredibly smart people, Um, and Hewlett is no exception to that. Um, I think Hewlett also has quite a reputation of being very thoughtful and strategic, Mm -hmm. almost to a fault. We're constantly questioning whether our strategies are are correct, you know, our assumptions, um, doing evaluations, it's really a thoughtful place where um, people make sure that we're spending uh, the resources in the most effective way, and um, this might probably not be the best thing to mention during this podcast, but I'll mention it anyway because I was in civil society for so long. Not fundraising is actually one thing that I really like about this job, Right, um, but, it, but it's taught me now, now I understand why uh, I was unsuccessful in many ways, and mm-hmm. um, it certainly has taught me how to do fundraising better.
1: Amazing. That's exactly how I feel it I do as well, because I'm, my background is in fundraising, and, and now I am a program officer for some of our clients, and it, it definitely it teaches you so much. Mm-hmm. It's so yeah. fascinating.
0: Well, speaking of that, as a program officer Alfonsina, what are your primary responsibilities?
2: So, I think the most basic one is just making grants. I'm responsible for choosing who we give um, grants to. Um, that, of course, involves then managing the grants. I actually manage two different portfolios, one is on transparency, participation, and accountability. And the other one's on women's economic empowerment. And so in total, I manage about 47 grants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that includes keeping track of, of the grants and the reports, of course, checking in with grantees uh, to see the progress of those grants, reviewing the reports, um, keeping track of the budget, um, and making sure that uh, we're on track to spending the money and um, uh Strategy building, I think, has been another one, which I don't know if it's common. I just happen to be quite lucky at um, joining Hewlett at a time where the two portfolios that I'm involved with um, had some sort of strategy process. In the case of Women's Economic Empowerment, it was building the strategy itself. In the case of Transparency, it had been a long-standing strategy for about 10 years, and so we uh, did an update of that. Um, and I think probably I'll finish that question with saying that I think part of my role is just asking the right question.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So at Hewlett, your team is responsible for awarding grants that expand women's reproductive and economic choices, amplify citizen participation, and also improve policymaking through evidence. So with such an ambitious and important mission, how do you decide which grants are most effective in achieving this?
2: Um, I think the first um, variable, I guess to determine whether uh, a grant is effective um, is strategic alignment um, mm-hmm. you know whether whether grants uh, and the grantees themselves are aligned with your strategy um And hopefully you want relationships that are long-term so that you can get to sort of test whether or not that strategy and the assumptions that are uh, embedded in it are are the correct ones. Right. Um, You know, as a program officer, you have more of a bird's eye view. So it's hard. It's easy to sort of determine whether a specific grant is successful, particularly if it's a project grant uh, because their goals are so specific. But when you're talking about a strategy, you really have to take a bird's eye view Uh, of not only your grantees as a total, but also grantees that other program officers uh, manage and even um, organizations that are not your grantees, but that play a key role in sort of the ecosystem of whatever topic you're trying um, or problem you're trying to solve. So um, you do have to keep that bird's eye view uh, and be able to assess Things that might be beyond the scope of your own portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, I think an element that contributes to a grant being successful um, is certainly organizational health. And I actually just yesterday was reviewing a couple of proposals where it was really obvious how uh, their investments in institutional health had. Uh, provided results that showed programmatically. uh, Their strategies were super clear. Their objectives were um, also very clear and realistic. They had a clear theory of change. So I think organizational health um, certainly plays a part in that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think passion for issues is not to be undermined. Um, a, A grant a grantee who is passionate about the issues that they work with, coupled with strategic, tends to be sort of a powerful combination. Hmm. Um, And to be quite honest, one of the biggest surprises that I had about this job um, is that I think a lot of sort of instinct uh, plays into how we make decisions. Um, Some people might call it more educated guess than instinct, but a lot of it, you know, there are connections that I'm sure happen as a result of a lot of information from that bird's eye view perspective, but it feels like a lot of the decisions that I make start at least as an instinct. And eventually I can have some data and, um, and evidence to prove that how I made that decision. But at the moment it seems almost instinctual.
0: So when you do award a new grant from, as a program officer, what, what's the most, what's the thing that makes you most excited, excited about working with a new grantee?
2: Oh, um, it's a good and difficult question. Um, I think the work that they propose, um, particularly if it's either something, it's very, believe it or not, sometimes it's common that you have in your head the idea of what a perfect grant would be mm-hmm. and you actually can't find it <laughs> either because you right. can't find the right grantee or, the, or the, um, the work that they do is not exactly aligned. So when you find that, sort of unicorn of a grantee that you had been dreaming about. It's quite exciting. Um, I think the people, meeting the people that um, not only work um, in the organization that you're awarding the grant to, um, but also the beneficiaries um,
0: Mm -hmm. gets me
2: super excited. And so linked to that, I think field visits um, get me very excited and keep me inspired in terms of uh, the work that we're supporting. And just learning about what they do, I think, uh, as, as you mentioned in the intro, um, the work of a program officer or the relationship of a program officer and, and a grantee ideally is more of a long term and it's an investment and it takes time to both get to know the person and the people that you're working with as well as learning the work that they do and mm-hmm. um, so all of those things, I think, um, excite me either at the beginning when they're pitching or throughout the, um, the progress of the grant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What is the most common mistake fundraisers have made when applying for a grant?
2: Mm, um, I think one of them, the most common usually that I find is when you can tell that they're trying to force you're, are trying to make the shoe fit. Right. Um, when it's clearly, when it's clearly not right. Um, um not being upfront about the limitations or sort of failure stories that they might have. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, some some grantees might not know this, but particularly if you get uh, grants from other funders, funders talk to other funders. Right. And so we we know what the stories of grantees from other funders could be. So if you have a very sort of well-known failure and you don't address it, that's, that's kind of a, a big faux pas. Um, I think a common mistake also is just being um, inaccurate or unrealistic about um, the outcomes that you can achieve, the budgets uh, that are proposed, um, and the timeline. Uh, it's very common uh, for me to get back to uh, grantees or potential grantees, uh, just asking questions about like, is is this really realistic? Um, and I just, I, 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 I would encourage your listeners, my. Uh, boss, my boss, the um, director of the Global Development and Population Program, Ruth Levine, um, every Friday puts out what are now known as Friday Note, and um, they're posted on the, um, on the blog page of the Hewlett Foundation, and she, she uh, put up one uh, not too long ago. Uh, I think the title was Pitch Imperfect. Uh, and it really had sort of what she called the sins of um, grantees that are pitching for a grant that you should never do. And so I encourage your listeners to check it out. It's really a very uh, complete list. And just looking at it, I'll steal one more from her yeah, that I nice. didn't mention, but I think it's a common mistake. Just not doing your homework. right? Um, knowing what we fund, knowing where we fund, you know, if, uh, you're in proposing work in a country that is not um, uh, that that is not within our um, regional focus or a subject that is not. Um, yeah, and asking questions. I think a lot of grantees, um, right. understandably, you know, want to make the best use of their time and end, end up talking a lot. Um, right. Without asking questions, you know, a lot. I understand that a lot of funders, for example, are not very transparent about what their strategies are. Mm-hmm. So you know, make make sure you use that time to ask questions about what is that strategy, or if you have any doubts, or or even you know, pushback about what the strategies are. I think that's a that's a common mistake, uh, certainly. Uh, and I would add to that: no PowerPoint under no circumstances. <laughs> Noted.
1: Um, yeah, no, and that's really interesting that you say that in terms of remembering that the foundation has a mission of its own and, and has a charitable purpose and, and having those, those conversations that you know, get beyond the, the technicality of it all is so important. Um, and so in terms of, so with these mistakes and not doing their homework and such, what, in, in your opinion, what overall is the most common reason that you would decline a proposal?
2: I think lack of strategic alignment tends
1: okay. to be the most common one. Okay. Okay. That makes sense.
0: So, Francina, Hewitt is a leading funder that, and you guys regularly provide multi-year general operating support for charities, which is not only extremely rare but also kind of the holy grail in many respects of fundraising. How do you decide whether or not an organization is fit for this kind of support? Um, and and would you go? Would you give a grant, an, an unrestricted grant like that, to a first-time grantee?
2: Um. I think the the main criteria that I use for providing general support has to do with um, again strategic alignment. If it's mm-hmm. an organization whose all whose work, and I mean all of the programs, are really well aligned with our strategy. Um, it would make sense to provide general support because we could fund literally any of the projects. That's kind of the right. um, mm-hmm. the logic behind uh, providing general support. Um, I think it's it, it, it is it tends to be a type of support that is provided to more long term or, or or trusted grantees, uh, partly because um, it's unrestricted and. Um, it, it, these grantees have, have a long track record of proving not only um, the ability to carry out grants successfully programmatically but also um, administratively. Um, mm-hmm. so I think some some organizations, if they're new, you might not necessarily the work itself might be very well aligned. Um, but if they're new to you and particularly to the to the field, say if you don't have if you don't know any other funders who have funded them, It's hard to do sort of compliance on the administrative side to know how they would manage a grant. Uh, So you might wanna do a couple, um, if if you're seeing this as a potential general support grant, you could do one programmatic or project grant as a pilot, test out their administrative and monitoring and evaluation capabilities and then um, upgrade them, if you will, to uh, general support. Um, General support is also kind of ideal for uh, foundations as well, just because the, the burdens of reporting and the requirements are less for us right. as well, so we have less reports to review, um, less financial statements to review. Um, but that being said, I mean, Carlos, you mentioned that it's, uh, it's seen by many reasons as sort of the holy grail, but there are some reasons why it might not be ideal. And I'm um, there's a specific case that I'm thinking about uh, that I dealt with last year, um, particularly for at least U.S. private foundations, we have certain funding restrictions that are imposed by the uh, uh, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, um, particularly around lobbying and electioneering, and right. lobbying um, in the U.S. being understood as work with a legislative, not advocacy, which I know in the U.K. Um, they're interchangeable. And so sometimes general support is not ideal because the work that a grantee might want to do might actually involve work with the legislature. Um, hmm. You know, you might have a project that has to do with, you know, supporting, for example, candidates that are, um, let's say, provide their tax returns, for example, oh, right. um, and and you would want to at least endorse that that candidate is being transparent about about that. Um, Those type of projects are prohibited by law to be funded by U.S. um, foundations. And so say that you had an organization that Hewlett wanted to fund, um, not one of those projects, a a different project, you wouldn't want to give general support because then they couldn't uh, pursue those other projects even if they were funded by some other funder. And so sometimes it actually is helpful to not have general support, depending on the type of work um, that you do. So it's helpful to have that conversation with program officers to figure out what is the right fit and what is the right type of support for the organization so that you can continue to do the work that you want
1: to. Absolutely. That's really, really interesting. I expect increasingly so um, in terms of, of lobbying and activism. So yep. in, in 2016, your department at Hewitt awarded a 179 new global development and population grants, which totaled $105 million. And so of those grants, were most of those solicited applications, or do you review unsolicited proposals as well?
2: Most of the work that we support is solicited. Okay. Um, the reason for that is that we, act, with the exception of when we had uh, the office in Mexico City, which is now no longer active, we're all relocated to Melo Park, right. we don't have any in-country offices, and in comparison to other large funders that that um, provide that type of, uh, the number of grants and the amount of grants per year, we're actually quite a lean operation. We only mm-hmm. have about 100 staff total. Um and that includes, of course, uh, administrative staff uh, and um, and programmatic staff. So we just don't have the bandwidth uh, to be able to uh, process unsolicited proposals. That being said, some programs do um, have processes of unsolicited proposals for a specific um, project. Uh, last year, it was the 50th anniversary of the Hewlett Foundation, and one of the ways in which we celebrated was The Performing Arts Program launched a uh, 50 um, Arts Commission program, uh, which is meant to fund 50 works of art in different performing arts. Um, And that that process did uh, request uh, unsolicited proposals from uh, Bay Area-based organizations that were interested in applying um, for a grant. Uh, and I believe the domestic reproductive health uh, program is about to launch also a um, a call for uh, unsolicited proposals uh, for um,
1: basically
2: uh, counteracting uh, the current political context and uh, against sort of women's reproductive rights in the U.S.
1: Right. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. So, as established, obviously, you guys are a very large, influential, global foundation. And that can be intimidating for many fundraisers. Um, do you, for fundraisers who have no previous relationship with an organization, like a, with a foundation of your guys' size, how would you advise them to approach you, but also kind of, you know, other of these very large, um, um, of these very large international foundations?
2: Um, I mean, I think doing your homework is part, part of it. Um, m- sometimes on websites, at least in our case, uh, you have the names of all the staff members. There are blogs that we write that can give you sort of an insight as to what are some of the topics that program officers are interested in, uh, right. what are some of the questions that the programs uh, as a whole are dealing with. And so I think doing a little bit of that homework gives you an edge as to how to approach. In the case of Hewlett, because we're, we're a large foundation in terms of the grant making that we do, but we're a small operation, you know, yeah. literally just writing to the program officer that you think could be your program officer and requesting, um, and requesting a meeting. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: but the, the request should include some information. Uh, I think one of the mistakes, the common mistakes that some people might make is that they request a meeting, but they don't really provide any information as to what type of work you are requesting support for. So it's difficult for a program officer, to be quite honest, to make the decision about whether or not to uh, make use of a time to a meeting that you could say, this is actually not a good fit just by reviewing something over email.
1: Right, right.
2: I, so I do think that just understanding that um, your program officers have time-limited restrictions, there's a lot of travel involved, and so providing a you know a clear sort of brief statement as to what type of work you're looking for support for can either get you a meeting, or in some cases, it might not be a good fit, but you actually know of a funder who's looking for that, supporting that kind of work, and you can redirect it. Um, so I think... Uh, you know, I, I can't speak for other foundations, and I know that it, it, it's very case-by-case case basis, but I, in the case of Hewlett, and, and mine in particular, I think that's a, that's a very reasonable approach, regardless of whether you know that person or not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And I love what you said before about funders talking to other funders and remembering how small a world it is. So moving forward into that relationship-based approach, so, so often the two stages of that donor journey that are most commonly skipped over are the cultivation and stewardship phases, but they are arguably the most critical. So in your experience as a program officer, what makes a charity stand out in these areas? And are, are there any common mistakes that you see charities making? Um, yeah, and I think, I think they might be similar to ones that I um,
2: alluded to in one of your previous questions, but yeah. Um, I think one of them is certainly, in, in, in terms of a good fit or, uh, good ways of cultivating, uh, the relationship, just being honest. Right. Um, it's, it's really refreshing to, first of all, again, have, you know, clarity about, uh, the project and the niche that your organization, um, fills, mm-hmm. knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at, um, I think a common mistake is is assuming, and I completely understand that there is an inherent power dynamic that can't be denied, it's the elephant in the room, but that being said, I think the health, healthy way to have a relationship with a program officer is to see them as much as possible as a partner rather than a donor. Um, and take, taking advantage of the fact that program officers have a bird's eye view and Uh, oversee many other grants to get their perspective um, without assuming that that's actually a directive. I think a common mistake again is, you know, I'm very weary of making suggestions to grantees because I'm afraid that they will take it as you have to do this. Right. Um, And so, you know, allowing yourself to be open to suggestions, uh, again, because of the expertise and the particular perspective the program officers have but also allowing yourself to push back to your program officer or to question a particular um, suggestion or strategy. Um, I think that's uh, definitely helpful and one of the ways in which I've cultivated good relationships with my um, grantees. Um, I think involving other people in your team, I mean, there's always Uh, It's helpful to have a point person, certainly, but um, getting to know the organization and other people that work on the projects and hearing their voices, uh, and in particular, I think the beneficiaries. I think that's also, you know, as as a project evolves, if that is the case where there are specific beneficiaries, whoever those are, it's helpful to hear those voices in, in the first person rather than through a report. Um, yeah. And so I think that those, those are certainly sort of common traits of good relationships that I've established with grantees, um, which just leads to really healthy, interesting, fascinating conversations and learning for myself and hopefully for the grantee as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: So this kind of leads really nicely to our next question. What is the best way... That you've ever been cultivated, and do you have any superstar stories that others should follow? Mm.
2: Um, I think yeah, I think you're right. In that, built into the the previous one, um, I mean, there's I, having check-ins with grantees. I think in our case, we um, because we don't have in-country offices. I do try to meet with grantees in person as much as possible. I think it makes a difference, um, and in those meetings, it's helpful to for grantees to have specific questions. So, you know, do you have any? Do you know of anybody else? You know, we we i giving you an example you know, of a grantee who says we're actually not really good at, um, say, data visualization. Do you have any grantees that you think we could approach who could help us in translating this? Um, hmm. Or grantees who, you know, say we're interested in putting together a campaign, we're actually not really good at reaching out to young people. Do you have a suggestion of other grantees that actually do have... Um, expertise in this area. and so I think that that's um, just to give you a couple of examples of I think how um, interesting conversations of the progress of a grantee uh, can um, be cultivated and really establish a good relationship. Again, being honest about mistakes, you know uh, we did this and it didn't work. Um, that's usually, I know a very scary thing for grantees to do. In the case of Hewlett, we're not scared of failure at all, and I actually think that it's part of my job, to be quite honest, because I think that as a foundation we can absorb that risk in a way that grantees maybe can't. Right. Um, But it's, it's a different story when you talk about failure. If you have a discussion about why you think you failed, then that actually becomes a learning conversation rather than just, oh, we failed, and let's, you know, um, sweep that under the rug and move on. Uh, and it can lead to course changes in the progress of a grant. So rather than saying at the end of the grant, well, you know, this didn't work, if you actually have conversations with your program officer and other staff and other grantees about things that are not working, it can allow you to change either uh, a project that you have in terms of tactics, or maybe you had assumptions that are not playing out, or maybe the context changed. You know, if there's an election, then you're dealing with different right. policymakers or a completely different political scenario, and so your your project has to change. And at Hewlett, I think we're very um, attuned to the fact that by the when the time, you know, there's a difference between when you draft a proposal and how it plays out. Right, um, and failure plays a part of that. It's how you discuss the failure that I think um, not only leads to better projects, but also kind of is a is a symbol of trust in in, in your program officer that hopefully will be you know returned, and uh, just has um, great um, repercussions for both the project as well as the relationship that you have with your
1: funder. Yeah, that's amazing to hear because I you know. It, so often charities are really they have a lot of anxiety about talking about their mistakes, and you know, when writing and reading reports, it's so often that glossy answer of we had these obstacles, but then we overcame everything, and everything's fine. And and it's I think it's incredible that you know really prominent funders like Hewlett are giving permission to their grantees to be transparent and complicated and human and and have mistakes and really make it that collaborative process because that's inevitable, and it is because of that inherent power dynamic that's to some degree degree. unavoidable it is it's really wonderful to see you you taking that and and allowing your grantees to talk about themselves in that way I'm sure you have really interesting conversations with them
0: but I think if I could just add that one of the reasons why it is always scary to admit anybody you know when you've made a mistake especially when you're when you've made a mistake with someone else's money um but I think that at the same time you know that that can be overcome quite easily if you have an open relationship and a lot of things that you've been saying, Alfonso, about having that kind of open dialogue um, with your program officer or program officers um, to make sure. So when something does happen, whether it's external or internal to you, um, you can you can be honest and kind of have and, and say, "Look, we've tried this, or this has changed." Um, and then it, you know, having that open dialogue makes the makes the mistakes, makes the changes to a particular grant or project less scary.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, to your point, we're also, in a way, your mis- a grantees mistake becomes the program officer's mistake because we're ultimately responsible for making that grant and it's not our money either. So right. we kind of bear that right. risk in a way of right. owning, owning up to those mistakes. And so if we know why they were made, it's also easier for program officers to make the case of, for example, why you would renew a grant that failed because you have you have had those conversations. If right. you didn't, and then the grant fails, then it's really hard for program officers to make the case for a renewal of a grant that, by the looks of it, failed without really knowing why.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that sort of goes back to your earlier point about, like, you know, being strategic in your proposal and remembering that the, the foundation has a charitable aim and it's, it's not just a bank account and, and everyone's in that, that collective... Um, you know, journey together to create some sort of change. So the only way that can happen is if we are transparent and, and a little bit yeah. more complicated than than we'd like to think we are. Which is amazing. Well, I mean, Alphacina, thank you so much. This has been incredibly illuminating and helpful. I know for both of us, we're just nodding our heads and, uh, you know, we're very excited about this conversation and we hope that it will be really helpful for our listeners and fundraisers all over the world. Um, But before we sign off, just one last question for you. Um, So from this conversation, if there's one key thing that you want a listener, a fundraiser to take away, what would it be?
2: Um... I think that, you know, assuming the the power dynamic, which is inevitable, you know, think about it as a partnership, again, going back to that issue. Right. um, As much as grantees invest time and money and efforts in a program, the same is for a program officer. You know, that like any relationship, it really takes takes time, it takes honesty, it takes respect for the other people's uh, work and uh, passion for the issues to really... um, put down the foundations for what could be a healthy and long-term relationship so try to approach funders with that perspective of thinking about it as a partnership rather than just seeing dollar signs or pound signs uh which i think even even just approaching the funder with that attitude might change your pitch and your um almost energy in a way
1: yeah
0: well i've seen that I mean, thank you again, just this has been amazing, and I think that our, our, um, our listeners and all the fundraisers that will, will, will download this and kind of listen to it on their commute um, will have learned a lot, so thank you very, very much for your time, we really appreciate it, and we look forward to speaking with you again in the not-too-distant future.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much. Thank
2: you, Rachel and Carlos, it was a pleasure, and I hope I do, uh, you do have me a back soon. It was really uh, I loved it, thanks. <laughs> thank you
0: Well, that's all we got for our first episode. Thanks so much for listening. and a huge thank you to Alfonsina for her time and advice. We were really lucky to have her um and to, you know, to get her to agree to be our very first guinea pig for this uh, for this first podcast series. So thank you so much, Alfonsina. You're an absolute rock star,
1: yes, thank you so much. A huge thank you from me as well.
0: If you want to connect with us, check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. Um, Or when in doubt, we can always be found at Monmouth Coffee in Borough Market.
1: AKA IG Satellite Office. Thanks again and see you soon.